Welcome to the True Voice Podcast with your host, LaShawn Smith. Hey, welcome to True Voice, where we learn more about today through stories from amazing people. This is season three. I'm your host, LaShawn Smith. Here on True Voice, we talk with people who have remarkable stories that entertain, teach, and offer a human perspective on how today's most pressing topics remain deeply connected to our past. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Omawali Crenshaw. Omawali, welcome to the show. What's good, brother? What's good? I'm well, man. Hey, so the format of this is to get to some of the interesting things you're working on right now, but I like to start way at the beginning. So first question, where were you born and what was childhood like? Uh, born and raised San Francisco, grew up in an area called Bayview Hunters Point, uh, about eight blocks from Candlestick Park. That was my, my playground as a kid. Um, neighborhood, you know, was working class. Uh, grew up next door to my grandparents, and within a two-mile radius, there are about about ten different houses I can go to who are either cousins, uncles, aunts, or what have you. So it was a real big neighborhood. Um, I had a newspaper route uh, when I was a young hustler. Now I'm just an older hustler, but professional hustler. Let me be clear about that. And so, um, so I actually had some family members in a route. Learned a lot. Uh, about entrepreneurship, hard work, discipline, et cetera, et cetera. Went to uh, college prep, public high school, the magnet school called Lowell High School. Uh, tell me about, my that, ex- yeah, tell me my about that experience. Yeah, so the high school was maybe 65% Asian, 25% of Euro descent, um, two or three, you know, three or 4% African American, same percent as Hispanic, and then everybody else, Pacific Islanders or whatever but really, really opened my eyes to the globe because we had some of everything. And we had this festival every year called the Kermes Festival or something. And, and every ethnic group would bring their food and their music and the dance. And it was just this cornucopia of culture and literally changed my life. Because during that time, I had an amazing Spanish teacher who really opened the, the, the Hispano world to me at a significant level. And as a result of that, I wanted, I had a desire to go study in Spain. And so the high school experience was great. The cultural piece, I was a uh, college, I was a scholar athlete. So played football, baseball, ran track. And, you know, like most, you know, teenagers trying to find myself, um, met some lifelong friends, Ernie Bates, who you know, and uh, still involved in the high school, believe it or not. The, the high school was the oldest high school in western Mississippi. It's uh, consistently on at one of the Blue Ribbon you know, top 100 high schools in the country, blah, 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 uh, to this day. Although the percentage of African-Americans has dropped down to maybe 1%, uh, which is more a reflection of the dynamics of the cost of living in San Francisco. But uh, the high school was great, changed my life. Before we move off of that, a couple of things. One, give me one story, uh, something of cultural significance that you saw that was different than how you perceive the world once you got exposed to this, this broader set of cultures and, you know, you had this more global perspective. So, you know, San Francisco is known for being like the hub of the Pacific Rim. And so you literally get a snapshot of all of that. And probably one of the most significant things I learned from high school was actually the Filipino population. There was a large Filipino population. They were very involved in, in drill team ROTC, which I would have never thought. And it has something to do with their military roots or whatever. And as I learned more about the Filipino culture, learned more about world history, because at the time I did not realize that it was actually a Spanish territory. And so the names 
uh, not only of the cities in the island, but also the surnames of, of many uh, Filipinos that I met. And then the food, lumpia, and I'm sure you've had Filipino food before. And, you know, even had a chance to maybe date one or two Filipinos. But, you know, I was looking at your background and you've invested a lot in your formal education. So you correct me if I get something wrong. But as I understand it, uh, you played football and majored in economics at the College of San Mateo. You transfer to Howard. You graduate there with a degree in international business and finance. You get your MBA from Wharton. And then you completed a master's at John Hopkins uh, in international real estate development. So you're clearly a lifelong learner. What, what, what do you think is the number one payoff that you've personally got from this level of formal education? Yeah, so that's, that's a great question. And you and I talk about this theme a lot. And so uh, first and foremost, you know, I, like many of my, my peers at a young age, you know, the parents and grandparents were always harping on this, get an education, get education, get education. That was, so my high school, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, the, the graduation rate is in the 90s and the matriculation to college is in the high 80s, uh, just on average, you know, and, I've, you know, so it, it was embedded. If it wasn't embedded into me before high school, it definitely got reinforced in high school because my classmates are, some of my classmates entered Harvard as sophomore because they were taking so many AP classes. And so Lowell, for example, is the number one feeder school in California to the UC Berkeley system, right? And so my you know, high school is 800, I think my graduating class was 800 some people. And so formal education was always kind of, that seed was always planted. And then, you know, you get on this, this hamster wheel <clears throat> where you go to a good undergrad school, so you get into a good grad school. And then you, you get a good job and then all the rest of this stuff that they reinforce in us to become worker bees, right? Very rarely was there like, you know, get a good education so you can start your own business get a good education so you can, you know, you can change the world, right? It was always good at a, good, at a good education, get a good job. And it, it's not until you get into the weeds of that stuff when you start to realize what the, what the standard path is. And then the minute you become an entrepreneur, you've actually deviated from that path. And so formal education, in a lot of respects, reinforces that path, even at Howard, even though they're while at Howard, there are a ton of folks who are entrepreneurial thinking. Howard doesn't do a great job of cultivating the entrepreneurship. Is that risk aversion? Is that, you know, people who are in the administration and developing the curriculums, they're in the point of control. So, you know, they're teaching what they know, or do you think it's, it's a bit more intentional? Is it, you know, trying to keep people away from what they may perceive as risky? What, you know, like it can be any sort of directions. What do you think is root cause? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of folks. I don't think it's the latter. I don't think they're just saying, don't go there because it's risky. I think one of which there definitely is a risk aversion because as academics and academicia, you know, there, there's a risk aversion. But I think honestly, the biggest, one of the biggest drivers, at least in the business school, is that you have so many corporations recruiting for talented Afri people of African descent. But it's not just African-Americans. you got Caribbean, you got the African continent. And so I think that as Goldman and Merrill Lynch and the Bose Brackage Banks and and Pepsi and Coca-Cola and the consumer goods and P&G and all these folks show up on campus, right? They're selling the dream, right? They're selling the dream. That dream is, you know, you come in here, get on our management track and become a senior leader within our firm, right? I mean, they want you to be entrepreneurial, but in, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, sometimes, right? And so if you get caught up 
and then there's the same thing as Wharton as well. Uh, it doesn't change, and I'll get into that in a second. But at least at the Howard perspective, the more I learned, the more I realized that the corporate path was a was but a stop, you know, on a much longer journey. And yeah, you want to see it so you know what it looks like, so you don't have to worry about what you quote unquote missed. But once I did my two years, it sounds like I'm doing time, right? Once I did my my two years at GE, you know, I was like, okay, I got it, I get it, I see what you guys are trying to do. There's no way in hell I'm doing this the rest of my life. That was clear. And so I got out of that, you know, and before grad school, I did a little two-year pit stop in Nigeria. So I'd applied to Wharton, again, continuing down this form of education, because, you know, once you have a degree from Howard, you got to get an MBA, because that's just what we do. MBA law school or something, something. And because part of it is, and it's an interesting dynamic coming from an HBCU, because my high school was very much not that, which is actually what drove me to my high school slash junior college wasn't that, what kind of drove me to an HBCU. It was the first time in my life that I was in a major, for the most part, I was a majority uh, classroom of people of African descent. And that was in and, of itself, in and of itself incredibly liberating. And then, so now what happens, you get that experience. And I remember going to my job, my first job um, after the formal education. And, and there was this, this, this European descent woman in Jersey when I worked at General Electric. And she was just talking about, this, this is at the time when the Cosby show and the real world, the different world was on. So, you know, we're at Howard and that's us. And so she was just like, yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, it's kind of unrealistic, right? To have like the, the Huxtable family where you have a, a doctor and, and a lawyer in, in a black household. I'm like, my dad's a lawyer, my mom's a teacher. I mean, it ain't that far-fetched. I know plenty of doctors, right? And he's like, yeah, but you know, you know, see this different world thing, it actually looks like college. Because it is college, right? And so you got, you got this formal education thing. And then what happens is when you go to an HBCU, when you come out, even though you, you're very prideful and you're very, you feel very empowered, there's still this little doubt, right? And this doubt is, did it really prepare me the right way? And can I compete at a place like work? Right? And so part of is kind of how I'm built. Part of it was intellectual curiosity. And part of it was ego, right? And probably more of that was ego than anything else. And so I get to Wharton, right? And actually I apply to Wharton and I don't get in the first time, right? Because I had applied and I figured I'd get three years of GE. I ended up leaving GE after a year and a half because they had this rotational program that ended. I was supposed to go to Asia and they canceled the rotation to Asia. And I'm like, well, that's a dub. And so as I, as I anyway, so fast forward. So I get in, I apply to Wharton, don't get in. So then I spend the two years in Nigeria. I reapply to Wharton and I get in. Right. So then when I reapply and I realize that they have this waiver program and based upon your undergraduate transcripts and classes, you can actually waive out of classes. Right. And so I waived out of five first year classes at work based upon my Howard's, my Howard experience. And I remember getting up there the first semester and I'm talking to my classmates. and I'm in some classes with someone. Someone, well, why aren't you in accounting? Well, I already took it at Howard. And then so their response was, well, you know, accounting at Howard is not accounting at work. I was like, really? Because, you know, a debit is a debit and a credit is still a credit. And either you understand it or you don't. And as a matter of fact, just so you know, I actually tutor at the Wharton, at the Wharton tutorial lab for, under, for teach, tutoring accounting and undergrads. I'm good on accounting. Right. And it was from that, once I had that experience, you know, this happened like first month of class. After that, I was like, good. I'm like, I got Wharton. Right, right. Before we move off of that, let's go back to Nigeria. Like, um, I know, you know, 
those types of experiences tend to be growth experiences. What was, you know, maybe call out some of the personal growth. I know you even changed your name, I believe, out of that experience. Give us the the highlights of, of that part of your journey. So first of all, if you've never lived or worked in an emerging economy, it's a must, right? You understand a world at a whole different level. Plus, you're looking at the U.S. and other places around the world through a different prism. Okay, so that's number one. And you start to realize that U.S. policy that you didn't even think about the impact it's having on the entire globe, right? And and policies around um, neo-colonialism and and the ability to do to to export raw materials, e.g., oil, you know, cash crops, food staples, all that stuff, and and not being encouraged to actually process locally. And so you see that real time. You also see a large, a humongous, enormous schism between the haves and the have-nots, right? Like our goal, you know, our in the United States, our perspective of poverty is somebody living in the projects, but they still got cable, right? With all the channels, right? And maybe even a beamer outside, depending on how how that how the dollars stack and the and the public assistance may or may not stack, right? Over there, like object poverty is you don't eat. Right, poverty is you don't have health care, right? Which, although it's not much of the United States, but at least you got clinics and you can go to some public health stuff. There, it's rough. So that was kind of the first thing. Secondly, uh, while I was there, Nigeria is on the verge of a civil war, and so I, w- I got to Nigeria February '93. I got evacuated in August of '93, and because our program was funded by USAID, and any USAID contractors were strongly advised to be out on the last flight. And I talked to my, I remember I talked to my father and I was like, well, they don't have beef against me. I'm good. He was like, get your ass on that last plane. <laughs> and so, uh, so I, I did. And so let me run it back. So I came back to the States. That's when I actually reapplied to grad school. Um, and then I submitted my applications and my Thanksgiving weekend of fall 93, I was back on the plane to Nigeria right after Thanksgiving. And so uh, got into Wharton. So I had a host family there, and the host family, the I'm in a place called Ibadan. Ibadan is about two hours, hundred and forty some odd kilometers from Lagos, as the crow flies. And so I'm with the Adeya Jai family, and I remember when I was prepping for the the experience coming to Nigeria or going to Nigeria, I was doing a lot of reading, history, culture, trying to get up on Nigeria. And there was this guy named J.F. Adeyajayi, who was the author of most of the stuff I read. Don't think nothing of it. So I get to Nigeria. We got a legal, We have a week-long orientation, and then the car comes to scoop me up because I had been communicating with Mr. Adeyajayi, you know, who was our, you know, the host matriarch. But Puff is the one who came to pick me up. I'm talking to him. He introduces. I'm looking for for Thomas Crenshaw, and and I introduce myself, and his name is J.F. Adeyajayi. And I'm talking to him. We get in the car. And I'm like, so there was a J.F. Adeyajai who I, I was reading a lot about. Is that you? And he was like, yeah, I'm a historian. Wow. So come to meet one of literally one of the world's most renowned historians on African history, and particularly West Africa. So that was my hanging partner. And so I didn't stay in the house. I stayed down the street from the house, but I was at the house all the time. And so he used to be... He was the president of the University of Lagos at one point, and then he was the the uh, chairman of the history department, the history department at University of Ibadan, which 
just so you understand, historically speaking, the University of Ibadan during the during the 60s, 70s, and the 80s was one of the most renowned universities on the African continent, if not in the world. And he was the chairman of the history department for 20 plus years. And so we started talking, and we started talking about Nigeria and history and names. He said, I'm gonna start calling you Mowale. I'm like, you know, what is that? And he was like, Omo is the son of the child, and Wale means to return after a long journey. And so if you look at um, El-Haji Malik Shabazz, AKA Malcolm X, uh, he also took on the name of Mowale as well. And so I had to get some adjusting to it, but the more I started thinking about it and the more I learned, the more I wanted to get in touch. And the more I also realized how American I was and how I wasn't African, um, there may be some subtle cultural dynamics, but in terms of how we're our upbringing, and you travel with me, so you know how this goes. Um, we are very much oriented, oriented as American. We're literally lost because, you know, America is not really our home, although that's what we, we call home. And then we don't really know the African continent like that. And so we're, I, I consider us to be very nomadic in nature. But, and we'll get into the Columbia later, but there is a common thread about the diaspora. And there is a, a comfort, a level of comfort that I have when I travel throughout the diaspora that I don't feel anywhere else. And so, but yeah, so that's a little backstory in Nigeria. So yeah, civil war, uh, name and change, learning more about myself, learning more about history, colonialism, neocolonialism, and the dynamics of emerging economies. All that came out of Nigeria. And interestingly enough, that also helped me to shape how I restructured my applications for grad school. Because if you go back and read the first set, versus the second set of essays, night and day. Because a year, a year on the African continent and a year kind of figuring out how this all makes sense in my head and then now how I'm gonna leverage my talent became so much clearer when I wrote that second set of essays when I reapplied to grad school. Mm-hmm, makes a ton of sense. Connecting back to the, the grad school experience, I know for me, when I went to business school, I went in thinking I'm either going to, uh, you know, work at some place where I help write trading software, or I'm gonna be an iBanker or whatever. And like 60 days in, I was like, man, those are not my people. I'm, I'm gonna stick to, I'm gonna stick to, you know, entertainment and technology. But it, it was interesting because I had crafted this narrative of what business school is going to do, and really what it ended up doing is giving me another skill set for the the path that I was already invested and passionate about. Um, as you think about when you went in and when you came out, did anything change? What was your what was your goal for you know what you would do after graduation? If, again, if you go and read my essays, the first time versus the second time, the first time I was I was fed the dream. The first time I was on that path, when I reapplied, I was real clear what business school was not going to be, and I was real clear on the path I was going to take. Okay, and so when I first applied, again, corporate, you know corporate job, do my thing, whatever, whatever, whatever. Initially, and then I knew I wanted to do some entrepreneurial stuff. And we'll, I mean, we may get into e-planted furniture because some of that was built into that. But when I reapplied, coming out of Nigeria, I was very clear. My goal was to go in there and get some very specific skills, right? Enhance my, my financial projections, understanding the number of skills. Enhance my ability to identify talent skills. Enhance my ability to understand strategy at a higher level. And then enhance my skills to 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 basically implement 
the strategies I come up with, right? It was more, and there's a difference. When I reapplied, it was specifically and more focused on skill acquisition as opposed to using it as a platform, as a springboard to get a job. Gotcha. Makes sense. Now, did you extend that? Uh, you spent some time after B-School at McKinsey. Was that to refine that toolkit? What, what did you want to get out of that experience? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I had a chance to do an investment banking, our consulting, you know, the past. I chose consulting and I chose McKinsey because, you know, it was one of the top strat firms. And McKinsey is basically like postdoc, postdoc work, right? You graduated and now you get a chance to apply, but still in a bubble. And you get paid this time as opposed to having to pay. Um, and McKinsey, I tell people all the time, you know, McKinsey is a great place to be from, right? For a whole bunch of reasons. Great skills, the ability to, to the thing, the biggest thing I learned about McKinsey, uh, two things. One was just the, the, the mountain of data out there and information. Two, to be able to synthesize that stuff and to put it into some, into some structure that makes some sense. And you can do that across industries. So it's industry agnostic. Once you, again, functional skills. And those are skills I still use, you know, 30 years later. What, what do you think? This is a quick sidebar. Um, you know, some consultancies, specifically McKinsey is in this bucket, you know, have come under fire recently for, you know, having so much influence over governments and corporations just because they are these trusted advisors. And there's this line that they can, you know, that they have to straddle between, you know, being that trusted advisor and their self-interests. What, what, what do you, you know, do you think anything in that, that industry is, uh, is going to need to change or, you know, have companies and governments given too much power to these types of consultancies? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you know what's happening at MCK and MCK is McKinsey, we call it the initials. MCK over the last couple of years has been taking major, major hits. Um, they had some scandals. They had a major scandal in South Africa. If you take it even before that, McKinsey was behind Enron and some of that drama. They were not only were they consultants, but the CEO, uh, Jeff Skillen, was a former McKinsey guy. And so even back in those days, but then fast forward uh, in recent years, they, they, have, they, they paid a, actually two, two big things that have happened in the last couple of years. One was ESCOM, which is the energy company in South Africa, the main public uh, power entity. And they were, they were involved with some pay to play. Some person was supposedly a consultant to McKinsey who helped them close deals, who had government relationships and McKinsey. You know, it was shown we're charging these, these astronomical fees, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one of the big stains they had. But then recently they pay, I believe it was a, a half a billion dollar fine because they were involved with advising some of the pharma companies on the whole opiate crisis on how to basically increase the throughput and in, in, increase the dependency levels. I mean, it was insane. It was like <laughs> at some point, right? That's so, dope boy consulting. Let me tell you something. At some point, I remember... In, 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 at Wharton, and there was a class on business ethics. And I'm like, you're 30, you're 28, 30 years old. If you don't have values at this stage, you're not going to get them. And you're damn sure not going to get them in business school. Right. And so when you hear these stories, at some point, at some point, somebody, some click in somebody's head should have said, you know, this is actually not okay to create uh, a, 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 a mountain, a, a millions of, zomb- of, of drug addicted zombies. Like, it's just not okay, regardless of whatever the profit motive was or is. Like, somebody's internal compass should have caught that. And the fact that it didn't and it got that big speaks to a, a, an eroding of, of values across the board. 
not just McKinsey, obviously, they're not the only ones because the companies were doing it. You know, the regulators were in, I mean, it, it was just a shit show and a cornucopia of bullshit. And it's sad. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you're, you're, even as you're walking through some of these uh, recent events, you know, this professorial kind of element to your language, which makes sense because you are a professor. Uh, you also do real estate development and investment advisory, largely, I believe, for projects focused in the Caribbean and Latin America. With such a fungible skill set, uh, first question, you know, why was real estate the industry you decided to focus on? And second, you know, why the Caribbean and Latin America? All right, so I'm going to tie these back, uh, interweave a couple of themes here. So one, um, when I got out of Wharton, um, I went to a conference at Harvard and met this guy named Mike Franklin. Mike Franklin ran this organization called the, it was called OII, which is the Organization of Africans in Americas, And basically Afro-Latinos, right, from Cuba down to Argentina. I met him, come to find out he was based in D.C., end up uh, having lunch with him one day. He was telling me they were working, they got some money from, the Inter-American Development Bank and the Coldwater Foundation to do this study of micro-implants of small businesses in Afro-Latin America. And he was like, can I help? I'm like, well, I'm kind of working, but this sounds intriguing enough. I said, let me see what I could do and end up talking to my bosses at McKinsey. At the time, I was still at McKinsey, and I took a month off. And during that time, I got a chance to work in Venezuela, um, Venezuela Honduras, Peru, and then Colombia, uh, where I'm at now. And so planting the seed one of the things we found doing this micro, this micro enterprise study is a lot of the folks that we interviewed and talked to were either subsistence fishermen or farmers. The farmers were scattered all over the Pacific region. So if you look at Afro-Latinos, they follow the slave ships, right? They follow the agra, the agra um, economies, right? The, the, what they call the plantation economies, right? And so I got a chance to interact with a lot of these folks. And then when I'm talking to them, some of the issues they were having was around their land. Because historically, they, were, they had been on that land literally three, 400 years, mm. right? They never had a land title, right? They never had deeds, right? They were never officially registered. They just were there. Well, all of a sudden, the central government started realizing as they're migrating from an agro-industrial-based economy to a service-based, e.g. tourism, well, who had the nicest land? Right. It was all these communities <laughs> right. were on the Pacific coast. Right. Right. In the Caribbean. So they literally started selling the land out from under these communities. And these folks, they, they didn't have title. So then they created, there was this big stink. There was an organization based in DC called the Land Rights Institute. And what, what they literally do is help indigenous communities who are, who are being forced, forcibly displaced. And so that planted the seeds of learning about real estate. But when I got back to the States, I started doing more research, McKinsey skill. And I was like, man, like this real estate stuff, like seems to be all right. And this is post Wharton, right? I never took a real estate class at Wharton. And then I decided that at some point, because, and then I tied that to my Nigerian experience, you start to realize that everything, you know, the, the foundation and base for economic development is actually real estate. If you have an industrial park, it's real estate. If you're doing housing, it's real estate. If you're building schools or institutional, it's real estate. And, it, and that was the and you do hospitality, it's real estate. And so, um, fun uh, sports, it's real estate. And so, when I started to understand the connectivity, the interconnectivity, and the ecosystem between economic development and real estate, it was just a natural progression for me. And so, 
fast forward, we're now talking, I didn't actually get into real estate formally. I did, I did this research in Latin America in 1997, 1998. Um, and I met you in 1998. And then there were a couple more years before I actually got into real estate. I didn't actually get into real estate till, till January of 03, as you know, when I went to work for Mr. Gamble. But sidebar, and not sidebar, I'll take a quick step back. So I was doing this work with Latin America in 1997, 98. You and I did some stuff. Before we did that, I did some work for the World Bank in Mozambique, uh, South Africa, Zimbabwe. That was 98, 99. And you, you and I met 98, 99. I can't remember exactly when it was. Around there, yep. Yep. And then um, ADC, et cetera, et cetera. But then to go back to your point, so in 2002, July, my grandfather passed. And my grandfather was my heart. And when he passed, uh, and we had these watershed moments in our lives where we're kind of floundering. We're doing a lot of different things. We're touching and dabbling in a bunch of different things, but not particularly focused. And that's where I was in my life at the time. When my granddad passed. I took about three or four months. By then I had left McKinsey. I was doing stuff at the World Bank. I had left that work. And I went back home to San Francisco and I spent three months helping my grandmother through the transition. And when I did that, I spent those three months not only helping her, but I started doing a ton of research in real estate, um, trying to figure out, all right, I made a decision when my granddad died. What I really want to do, I've been putting off, is real estate development. And so I used that time, called Friends on Wall Street, got reports. And at the time, I wanted to do hospitality. And so I reached out to Bob Johnson's company. Um, you helped me with the contact, by the way, as you remember, with, uh, with Tom Baltimore. And I thought that was going to be the play. Simultaneous to that, because of a prior relationship I had with Mr. Gamble, Kenny Gamble, who ran Universal Companies, music producer extraordinaire, et cetera, et cetera, who's doing a lot of um, economic development at the neighborhood level. And so I basically met with Tom Baltimore and I met with Gamble. And that was going to define what path I was going to take in terms of getting into real estate. And then in this particular case, Baltimore, I was like, well, you know, we're trying to hire people that already have a background in real estate, you know, structure finance. I'm like, well, you know, I have a very strong background in strategy. He's like, yeah, well, me and Mr. Johnson do the strategic work. <laughs> we got I was, this. <laughs> I was like, okay. He's like, yo, but, you know, if you get in the game, get experienced, let's stay in touch. And so fast forward, I go up to Philly to Wharton, Whitney Young Conference. I talked to Gamble. That we, I was like, hey, I know you're doing this community economic development stuff. I want to learn more about it. I want to see if there's some opportunities. Met with him for breakfast. You know, we had an hour, hour and a half to meet, whatever. But that turned into lunch. Mm-hmm. That turned into late afternoon snacks. By the time we got to that point, and, and Gamble's a chairman, CEO Raheem Islam comes in and joins us. I have dinner with him. And by the time the dinner was done, I had a job offer. Okay. It started at 8 in the morning, and it ended at 10 at night. That was whatever that day. It was a Saturday or Sunday. Um, I moved to Philly three weeks later. And started with them in January of 03. They, what they needed help with, with was strategy and operational execution. I get up there, first day on the job, I get three binders, right? And this is real talk. Here are your first three real estate projects, right? They've been sitting on the shelf because we don't have anybody to run these through. So everybody, has, everybody runs projects here in addition to your, your, daily, your daily duties. So you're in charge of operations. You're in charge of facilities, you're in charge of HR, you're in charge of technology, and you're in charge of something else, but it wasn't real estate. I wasn't running a real estate office at the time. 
Um, but I had real estate projects. And my very first real estate project, as you know, was the Sound of Philadelphia, which was a restaurant venture, ironically, in a hospitality environment in Atlantic City at the Tropicana nightclub. Not the, not the nightclub, it was the Tropicana Hotel. And as they were building out this, this Las Vegas style thing called the Quarter, as in Latin Quarter. And it was literally get pushed in the deep end, welcome to real estate. And it was amazing. And I did, I did that. I had a couple of other projects. A couple of them um, didn't play out. One was at the Naval Yard uh, with Sentara Partners. And what was the third project? The third project was actually the redevelopment of the Commercial Corridor on South Street. Uh, and they were going to try to create an entertainment district. So those are the three first projects. And literally, so what happens, that real estate project, I have to write the business plan for it pulling from Wharton skills. I had to do the financial projections, right? Pulling from my GE skills. And then I had to pitch it. Uh, we had to, well, they already pitched, but we actually had to, to, to go through this whole process to get the, the funding from the Economic Development Authority of the state of New Jersey, right? Which is partially funded by what they call CREDA, which is a casino redevelopment authority, where they take one or 2% of the gross revenues from every casino and put them in this fund for the redevelopment of the Atlantic City area. Mm-hmm. And we were able to tap into that because they had a little provision for African-American people of African-American descent that, that went virtually untapped. Wow. Okay. And so we got almost $3 million from them. So what's interesting about that whole journey, I mean, number one, you got to put it out in the universe to say, this is what I want. So you got to, you know, one, people know what you're looking for. Two, once, you know, you got these real opportunities, you didn't have, you know, it wasn't these abstract concepts, right? You, you like to your point, you're thrown in the deep end, you get to learn. Um, I guess my you know, kind of observation slash question is, at what point do you get comfortable and say, all right, I got this, uh, you know, back to this theme of you being kind of a lifelong learner. Um, it's time to, you know, continue to level up. Level up in which way? Well, just, you know, you know, some people, they're like, all right, I'm, I'm going to go and, and develop multifamily apartments and I'm going to do that for the next 20, 30 years. Your journey is really interesting because, you know, it has a lot of different kind of uh, turns and different pathways. As you think about when you've gotten enough skill and one experience uh, to kind of go to the next step in the journey, you know, what internally, obviously sometimes a business doesn't work or, or, you know, things change and, you know, companies go different directions, like all those things happen, but, but maybe not specifically to that first real estate development experience, but broadly, what do you look for in yourself to say, all right, time to go to the next step? Yeah. So you, you and I are, are similar in some respects in this regard. Um, and I don't think we're unique, but I think it's kind of how what people like us are wired. One of which is like, we have a very low threshold for bullshit, number one. Two, we, we have an intellectual curiosity. Once that's satiated, we got it, right? The learning curve is, is maybe steep, but once you hit it, like, all right, what's next? Like, I got to use my brain. I got to be intellectually stimulated or, or I'm not going to do my best work. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that, so to that in twofold, one, that's the beauty, again, coming from a place like Howard and Wharton and McKinsey, because once you start checking these boxes and you got these successes and you navigated that stuff, you feel very comfortable moving and rolling into different types of things really, really fast. You know, at McKinsey, I was in M&A practice group. So the average McKinsey study, maybe two and a half, three months. Well, in the mergers and acquisitions practice group, 
the average study was four to six weeks. And so I'm on stuff all the time. So what do I love about real estate? Like no project is the same. Every project is different. It can still be multifamily, but they're different. And the thing what Gamble was doing, he was doing what he called community redevelopment. So he's got housing. He's like, well, you can't just build the housing and put the same people in it because you're just going to have broken down people, right, in new housing. So you got to rebuild the physical infrastructure, but you also got to rebuild the people. So then that, so that led, and you know, because you live literally in the middle of it with me, so you have a charter school, you have a workforce development center, you have an entrepreneurial small business support center, right? You have small businesses. They, we never had a, a, a like a, a venture capital or a, I mean, he had his personal investments, but to my knowledge, there was never really a, a, seed, a seed fund, but the, the Small Business Development Center had relationships with banks who did small business lending, so helped people that way. But what you really started to realize is like, man, right? One, this is hard work. Two, you can't, you can't go into it with a half-baked solution, right? So you gotta be comprehensive in nature. And so what the intellectually stimulating thing for me is, is, is literally the best way to describe this is you're a baker, right? And you know you're baking this, this and your specialty is apple pies, right? And you know, there's the recipe and then there's your version. Right? And so yeah, you got the basics, but you got this you got the, the cinnamon just right, you got the nutmeg right, you know how to interweave the, the, the butter, right? And brown sugar versus white sugar and whatever. So it's all of these different ingredients, right? And you start to realize what, right? Community economic development is like baking a pie, right? It is part art and it's part science. Yeah, I love and, that. And that's what's intriguing to me about real estate yeah. development. Let's uh, transition that to you know, where you spend most of your time today, uh, which is Columbia. Yep. Um, uh, for uh, just some grounding questions first, uh, educate us at a very high level. Like what are the main regions in the country? What does the economy look like today? Like, like set the stage quickly so I can get into a couple questions. All right. So Columbia got their independence in the mid 18, 1800s today, uh, 2021 Columbia has 50 million people of that 50 million people, about 20 or so percent of African descent. Um, so you're talking the better part between 10 and 12 million black folks here. As I mentioned earlier, most of the, the African, people of African descent, the populations throughout the region are all along the Pacific coast. And so if you look at a map of Colombia, right? Uh, Bogota is the capital, 8.5 million people. Second largest city is Medellin. Is in the, so Colombia, they have what they call departments. Departments are the equivalent of our states in the United States. So where we have the state of, Washington here, we have the Department of Valle de Cauca. So I'm in the third largest city, which is a city called Santiago de Cali, which you've been to. We've got about 2.4 million people. And it is also the epicenter of, of the black intelligentsia, the Afro intelligentsia here in the country. That's the largest percentage. You still have them in the capital in Bogota, of course. You have less, less in Medellin, maybe 10% Afro. But in Cali, depending on who you talk to, we're at a third of the population here. And so Cali is the biggest city in the Pacific region. Maya de Cauca, the state of the Department of Men, it's two hours from the largest port in Colombia. Largest port in Colombia is a city called Buenaventura. They handle roughly 60% of the maritime freight that comes 
two through Columbia. If you look at on Netflix, they have a a six part documentary talking about the the business of drugs. And there's one episode talks about cocaine. And they particularly highlight the city of Buenaventura. Hmm. It is the main through point for the majority of the cocaine because it's a shipping port and they have connections and shipping routes literally all over the globe. And so it gets dispersed through that. So what happens, Buenaventura, uh, the city is probably 90, 95% affluent. There's poverty and then there's Buenaventura poverty, right? Which is, so in Colombia they have what they call stratos. Stratos are economic, socioeconomic classes. Strato six, um, that's kind of where you live, right? Those Strato six is the top 2% of wage earners in the country. Strato five, the neighborhood I'm in is a Strato five. Working class, middle class is really three, four. Um, professional class is, is, is four, four, five. Working class, two, three. And then Strato one. One is the bottom, bottom one is social housing. Okay. And so Bonaventura is probably like negative one. Wow. Uh, it's bad. And I don't think you've ever been there. No, no, and I don't believe so. You have these communities literally living in these thick built hut looking things on top of the bay. And they dump their, their trash and garbage and sewage in the bay. It's, a, it's an environmental catastrophe. It's also the most important port city in the country. And because mm-hmm. of the automation of ports, um, the port em- em- employs very few people from the city. Um, the unemployment rate in Bonaventura before the, co- before the pandemic was 75% uh, in the formal sector. Now it's 85% unemployment in the formal sector. A lot of hustlers, a lot of people, street vendors, et cetera, et cetera, the informal sector, but formally, 85% unemployment. Wow, okay. Now, is that a unique set of economic challenges to the Afro-Colombian community, just uh, you know, more broadly to that region? How should I think about you know, uh, who is at a disadvantage and, and where are the, the biggest uh, kind of systemic broken issues uh, economically? All right, let me, let, me, let me draw one more piece and I'll, it'll answer that in that context. So the, the, the other big city in the, um, in the Pacific region is, a, it's a, so the department is called Chocó. Chocó, it's about an hour flight from Cali, Chibdo's the capital city. Choco is the epicenter of, of, of Afro-Colombia. And a lot of people who migrated to Buenaventura or Cali, they can trace their history to Choco. It's like African-Americans whose family comes from Georgia or South Carolina or whatever, right? And then they move up through, you know, depending upon the bus routes, they ended up, you know, from Mississippi to Chicago, from North Carolina to Philadelphia, and from Texas, Louisiana to the West Coast, right? So same thing with Choco. So Choco connects uh, Buenaventura. Uh, some go to, to Quito, I mean, the, the, the main city, Quito, but some end up in Bogota, Medellin, and a lot of folks can trace their family in Cali to Choco. And so, never dynamic with Choco. Choco, the other side of Choco, there's a place called Turbo. Turbo is basically the, fr- the, the frontera, the, the, the city closest to the Panamanian border. That's also a very, very, very major uh, throughput point for drugs and illicit contraband. Okay, so what happens is you get a lot of these families. These I mentioned earlier, these these subsistence um, fishermen and farmers, right? They're in the Pacific region, and they're also in the way of the drug routes. So what happens? You get the, the gorillas, you hear FARC, 
ELN, AUC, the narcos partner with those folks to create these pathways, right, to get up to and through. And they don't want everybody in their business. And so what happens is it literally rolls like this. We need this land so we can create an airstrip so we can go pick up our drugs. We're not asking you. <laughs> they take it. So either you give the program or you got 48 hours to be out. Wow. This is real talk. So obviously you don't want to subject your families to that, you know, and or you may say, all right, fine, just, you know, let us do our farming stuff or whatever. Like, actually, we need you to grow the cocoa plant. So the maize and stuff, you can do that to feed yourself. But in terms of product, now we need you to do this. And if you don't do this, the same deal holds. We're going to kill you and your family. So what happens? People leave. And so Colombia has one of the largest, if not the largest, number of displaced um, Afro and indigenous populations in the world. Over 7 million people have been displaced from their land. Most of that throughout the Pacific region. Chocó, so there's four departments in the Pacific region. Chocó is at the top. Valle de Cauca, which is where Cali is. You have Cauca, which is next door to us. There's Popayán, Timbiquí, Guapi. And then further down, you have Nariño and a, a port called Tumaco, which is also on the Pacific coast. Uh, it's predominantly a, a heavy bulk port for, for coal, I think it is. And just so you understand, the other reason why Cali has a large epicenter of African people, African descent. This was also the epicenter, use that word a lot, but this was also the center of, of Colombia was very big in sugarcane. And so okay. this was, and you, and I think you were with me when we went down to El Salito or Ponte Jala, I can't remember, but you know, we're, we're driving past sugarcane. So yep. Colombia still has a lot of sugarcane, relatively speaking, although they're redeveloping a lot of those sugar plantations into housing. So what happens, uh, take a step back, you have all, this displaced, all these displaced folks, where do they go to? Well, they come to the cities. They go to Bonaventura, they realize there's no jobs there, so they end up here in Cali, right? And so you have certain neighborhoods, there's neighborhoods called Siroe, another called Agualanca, you know, uh, still rough, you know, you're not from there, you, it's not advised you walk down the street without somebody from there. Mm -hmm. Like broad daylight, two o'clock in the afternoon, don't matter. And so, but so what you have is, so you have, to answer your other question about the economic dynamic, so you have a lot of, you know, the urbanization is happening globally, but it's happening at an accelerated rate here because you have, you have all this displacement taking place. When they get here, little job opportunities, schools are overcrowded. And on top of all of that, because of the drama that's going on in Venezuela, you've got two and a half, three million Venezuelans streaming across the border who also need resources and help, who are also, you know, coming up in the same areas, following the bus routes. They end up in Cali. Their kids are in the schools. They're overcapacitated, et cetera, et cetera. So all this is taking place, and this was pre-COVID. Right. right. I mean, that's an interesting thing, right? Because now the economic and poli you know, political tension that's happening in the country, it's, it's obviously been exacerbated um, by the pandemic. You know, as you look at some of these structural challenges, uh, it's still a very resource-rich uh, you know, country, obviously. Um, and, you know, I don't know what the solution is. I want to ask you that question. But, you know, education has been an unlock for you. And I know, you know, you educating students in Columbia contributes generally. But do you think that's part of the solution or how would you describe the broader solution on how the country should try to tackle this and really, you know, turn around some of these uh, structural challenges? So there's, there's two issues, right? I mean, it, there's a lot of issues here, but I'll focus on two. One of what you talk about is education. And then the other one you talk about is economic development. They, they can cohabitate and they can be a joint solution, but not, but 
they're not mutually exclusive, right? So, for example, you have the overcrowding in schools, as I already mentioned. A lot of, there are very few government jobs and very few corporate jobs here, right? This is kind of historic, you know, and even in the United States, I mean, most people work in small businesses. So here, a lot of the case was family-owned businesses, restaurants, bodegas, things of that nature. And a lot of them got hit like excessively hard during the pandemic. But in general terms, the thought is that, you know, the parents and the grandparents are working in the bodegas or what have you, and they're sending their kids to university. The kids come out of school and then they leave, they live a middle-class life one way, shape, or another, whether they take over the family business, expand the family business, or join, you know, get a government job or do something. You know, not much different than, than, than the dream that they sell you in the United States, but there are less opportunities here which means, therefore, that more people have to be um, entrepreneurs. And so, therefore, so even people coming out of the universities, there's still only a certain number of jobs, right? And so what happens is, you know, my students all the time, and unlike, as I mentioned, at Howard, where the companies come and they're trying to find talented, you know, students of African descent, companies don't come to these universities. Literally, they don't, right? There may be one or two contacts, but... In terms of formal career center that you and I know about that exists in the U.S., doesn't exist in universities here at all. And so everybody's out there hustling, family relationship, neighbors, you know, professors. I mean, that's, that's how people get their gigs. I mean, obviously, you know, you talk about kind of your summer experience, my summer internship. A lot of them came from our hustling too, right? And it wasn't down to formal career center, but at least there were a lot of people that had that path. Here they don't. So therefore, so entrepreneurship is is really the way, number one. And then the second part of that, one of the things that it goes back to our earlier theme about colonialism and neocolonialism, Colombia still, they export oil, they export maize, they export sugar, they export cocoa, they export bananas. It's still, even though there are less people working in the agricultural sector, it's still the largest driver of the economy. I mean, oil, I mean, it's still extractionary and our, our, um, our, cash crop based, right? Right. So the play, honestly, is the very thing that actually makes the most sense that combines both the formal education and the entrepreneurial piece, given historic and the historic uh, economies of of um, the, play, the historic plantation economies. The play is actually do some semi or full processing locally. Hmm. So go higher up the, the stack. So you're not just selling the lowest commodity. Exactly. And so what that means is, so cocoa, for example, let's just use cocoa as an example. Cocoa, I'll use two examples, cocoa and acai. Colombia produces 65,000 metric tons of cocoa a year. On the grand scheme of things, it's a small percentage of the world production. West coast of Africa produces two thirds of the world's cocoa. You know, um, Cote d'Ivoire alone produces 1.3, 1.4 metric tons, right? A million, million tons, excuse me, million metric tons, as opposed to 63,000 from Colombia. But the Colombian cocoa, like Peru and Ecuador, same thing in the region, because cocoa originated from here, and the Spanish brought it to West Africa and started cultivating it there and realized it was, it's not Spanish, the French, the British, whoever, um, they brought it to West Africa. But, but the quality of cocoa in this region is rated as the top 5% highest quality cocoa in the world. And so what happens is that the cocoa from here finds its way to high-end chocolate and not that Hershey Snicker bar stuff that you're thinking about, 
high-end chocolate, this Godiva, Newhouse out of Belgium, et cetera. The Swiss, the Swiss, the French, and the Belgian chocolatiers, right? And so the play, if you break down you know, the cocoa bean and the, and the pre-processing, you have four byproducts, four primary byproducts, cocoa liquor, cocoa paste, cocoa butter, uh, cocoa powder, okay? And depending upon the uses of the cocoa and whether it's chocolate or byproducts or what have you, our derivatives of chocolate, they need some element of those four things. Mm-hmm. And so Colombia in this moment right now, uh, I've been doing this research the last couple of years, uh, of, of, and there's two, two parts of this. Of the 65,000 metric tons I mentioned, Colombia uses, loses 35 or 40% of that at Farmgate. Uh, poor handling, poor practices, poor cultivation, poor yields. Okay? So now, 65,000, you took 40% of that. Right, that's 36,000 36, metric tons gone. Okay, so that leaves you the better part of what 30, 35 ish metric tons. Of that, of that 35 metric tons, 85% is exported as raw cocoa beans. Only 15% are utilized, processed locally of some form or another. Right, here's the deal if you just saved half. Of the stuff that you lost, you don't change the export equation on the on the, the cocoa beans that are being exported today, and you take that other half and you do some semi-processing, the value add is three, four X what you get from a cocoa bean or raw bean. Right? And and there's so many social responsible, you know, sustainable sourcing verbiage and stories you can talk about because these cocoa beans, most of them are actually in Afro and indigenous communities. So if you change that equation, you help them to cultivate and you come up with a consortium so they don't get screwed on the pricing, which is what they're currently getting because there's only one or two buyers. Again, Netflix, um, they have a whole series called Rotten that talks about the food value chain. There's one called Called bitter yeah, I've seen that. And it talks specifically about the cocoa value chain. Okay. Mostly in West Africa, mm-hmm. but it applies down here as well. Right? Because you got cocoa in Cuba, which is a different dynamic. You have cocoa in the Dominican Republic. Most of the Caribbean islands, many of the, not most, but many Caribbean islands have cocoa, but in small quantities. But if you can come up with a consortium where you can actually, uh, and Haiti even has it, if you can actually cultivate and consolidate into a consortium, right? Easy story to tell. You can cut a deal at, at a better price point, semi-processing. So if they sell you, and here's the thing I've been thinking about. So you, you sell to this consortium at X price and, and the objective is to process the, the products that you get from those providers, those, those, um, those suppliers. And then what you do is you set this up in some, some kind of structure where all those providers based upon the volume on an annualized basis, they get X percentage of shares in a processing facility. And then here's the other kicker, right? Their kids who aren't working on the farms when they go to school, now they can actually work in the factories, you know, as engineers, as accountants, as, as product managers, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, right, exactly. there's a whole ecosystem. It's back to the economic, you know, development, the community development exactly. um, that you talked about in Philly, um, you know, at a much broader scale. 
before we wrap, because you're just dropping gems here, right? Like that's a whole, like that's multiple business plans and (laughs) ideas that folks could dive into. So that's super fascinating. A couple of things. First, you know, I've spoken to a number of MBA students who romanticize, you know, international business. And you're sitting here dropping uh, jewels and kind of walking through the process of, you know, these real life opportunities, you know, feet on the ground. The actual experience that people are romanticizing usually or many times isn't, uh, you know, as uh, as luxurious as they as they they might paint the picture in their head. If we level up this conversation from many of the things you've seen, not just in Colombia, but across the globe, you know, what is one of the biggest hurdles that you think these students should prepare themselves for if they're really serious about a career uh-huh. in international isn't business? Isn't that a great, that in and of itself, that's a whole different podcast, brother. But I will only say this. <laughs> maybe we'll have to come, we'll have to come back maybe and uh, dive in deeper, but give me the summary. I'm going to summarize that into a few words, a few buzzwords, Okay. Sacrifice, delayed gratification, patience, or, or, or lack thereof, and willing to get your hands dirty. And then lastly, being not risk averse, but risk seeking. And as you know, most MBAs, they talk a good game, but most of them are risk averse because, right, they bought, they bought in the dream of the lifestyle. And that lifestyle, right, that usually comes with debt. And then that debt locks you into the companies. You can't leave. You got kids? Oh, okay, that's private school, right? Unless you live in a high, a high, a high tax bracket neighborhood where the public schools are solid. Otherwise, it's, anyway, I got friends anywhere between 30 and 55 a clip for freaking Element or well, elementary, or it's the same damn price. It's, it's you know, junior high school, high school. And, and, and for folks who aren't tracking, you're saying thirty to $55,000 per, per child Plus, per year. Activity fees yeah. and everything else. Right. I mean, it's not much sure. different than what you're playing yeah. for college. Right. Yeah. So, so people have to be built for the journey and they got to be, or they should be intentional about the responsibilities they take on because those can become handcuffs if you're not thoughtful and intentional. Yeah, exactly. And you know, most folks, they don't have a stomach for this. They don't have a stomach for this. And, you know, I mean, I question sometimes, I don't question whether I have the stomach for it, Um, not anymore, but, you know, I, 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 I do question if, I, I do question and it's more rhetorical, like, man, how long is this really going to take? I don't question the journey. And, and as anything, it, it comes down to the, being in the right conversations with the right relationships, the right connects, and then and catching the right wave, right? And yeah. you time it that. takes the stamina. Yeah, I'm saying, if you, you can't win if you don't stay in the game. By, by default, you cannot win if you don't stay in the game. Yeah, I mean, it's the, you know, it's the local stand-up comedian who has been trying for 10, 20 years to to get that break. And you got to, like, if you don't step up and tell those jokes, you don't have a shot. Yeah, that's real talk. And then, you know, so you got you have that dynamic is absolutely one. And then the other dynamic, too, and again, I am fortunate, well, I'll put it this way. Um, unlike many of my, my classmates and friends who have wives and kids, right, I have the fortunate ability to be flexible, 
and I can I can dial up or dial back my lifestyle relatively easily. Some of those folks can't. And so they they missed their window um, because they're again the downside risk when you have a family and they not they not, they may not want to be on that that journey that sacrifice journey that you put them on. Right. No, it makes a ton of sense. Uh, you know, we need to be intentional. Um, before we wrap, looking back all the way back, you know, at yourself as a high school you know student, where would you say you've grown most as a person since then? I would say. If I had to consolidate this into one overarching perspective, bet on myself. Bet on me. Mm. Because, yeah. and you and I have talked about this, and, I, and we're not different in this regard. Many times we get faced with decisions, and our instincts tell us one thing, and we overthink the shit, and we make another decision, knowing our instincts were telling us to do something different. We don't follow our instincts. Right. We don't follow that gut, that gut, you know, sense of, of ours. And we, we don't, and we don't pivot in that direction. And invariably it always comes back and bites us in the ass. And so yeah. therefore I've started. So when I say bet on myself, trust my instincts. I've been, I've worked and lived in yeah. over 20 countries and, you know, looks like smells like probably is. And so, but what happens is, you know, you get analysis paralysis, that could be the consulting, that could be the MBA, that could be risk aversion, you overthink this stuff. When, as you just talked about, you know, executing this stuff is hard to do, but the solution is not rocket science. Yeah. How do you have the best, uh, you know, how do you keep your body in the best shape? It's, you know, the right level of fitness, diet, and like some really fundamentals, but can you execute that plan consistently to, to actually get those optimal results? Discipline matters. And I'm yeah. an undisciplined guy with ADD and ADHD. Yeah. That's why it's taking longer. Yeah. Man, it's fantastic to hear both your personal side, but also, you know, uh, getting a breakdown of an all up economy and some of the both structural um, issues, but also the opportunities is super insightful. Last question. Any last piece of advice you would give to young professionals broadly who are trying to navigate their own personal journey? Yeah. First of all, I would say. If you haven't taken the opportunity to work and live abroad, do it. I don't care what country, I don't care what region of the world, what language you have or don't have, because it tests you. It tests your resolve, it tests your discipline, it tests where your levels of patience are and what you're willing to sacrifice. Because invariably you're not gonna have everything you have in your home country. And how do you adjust in those environments real time um, and again, if you've got a family, that's a different type of adjustment. So they've got to adjust as well. And you have to adjust to their adjustment. But just as a, as a person coming out, and if you have that flexibility, live and work abroad because it opens up your, your, your senses. And, and I mean, and I literally mean your senses, all of them. You, you, you look, you smell, you feel, you touch differently when you have an opportunity to work overseas. And they've experienced, you know, we've traveled and I don't mean Cancun and the, the, the Zona Hotelera, you know, with the, with the bubble. I mean, like, 
going to the local markets and getting to know your neighbors. And, and it's just a different energy and a different vibe. Uh, and this isn't for everybody. You know, there are people who aren't willing to make that sacrifice. And obviously, if you're working for an investment bank or McKinsey overseas, you're living at the top end of the, of the, luxury, the luxury ladder. But I would highly recommend that folks haven't had the opportunity because you start to look at the world differently. You feel the world differently. You see the world. You experience the world differently. And it does nothing but provide additional perspective and insights that will add value for the rest of your life. Yeah, that's dope. Well, Omawale, thank you again for joining us and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. This was very cathartic. Cool, man. It was a dope conversation. And thanks to everyone listening in today uh, with our conversation with Omawali Crenshaw. We hope you have enjoyed your time. Please leave a great review wherever you listen to our show. I'm LaShawn. Thanks again. And remember, dream big, stay curious, and always share your true voice. See you next time. This is True Voice.